Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Uh, Going to make our way through this story. Have you noticed the days getting longer? The daylight increasing. It has helped to compensate for the cold weather in my books anyhow. But the sun is rising earlier and setting later each day. And we're, we've made it through winter uh, equinox. I checked how much longer. It's two minutes right now at this time of year. In this uh, area, every day, the daylight is increasing by two minutes, which um, an, is an increase that, <clears throat> for Christians, uh, brings to mind the text from Isaiah 9, verse 7, of the increase of his government. There will be no end. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish that. Uh, Referring to the Messiah, referring to our Lord Jesus. Jesus, the light of the world. We've celebrated at Christmas that he has come and that light shines in a dark world. The darkness has not overcome it. And our church fathers set the celebration of Jesus' birth around the winter equinox for that very reason. And so we are, we are now in this season of epiphany, of, of light, of revelation, insight, growing light in this world. And God is committed to the increase of the light of Jesus Christ in this world. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, the increase of his government. That is so exciting. And, uh, you know, he's doing a good job. It's 2,000 years. It started in Bethlehem and went to Jerusalem and then over to Rome and down to Africa and over to India and, you know, Europe, South America, China, Chicago, Elmhurst. The light is growing. And tonight's message is about becoming part of this story of our world's history. It's essentially a message on evangelism tonight, uh, which is sharing good news, literally. That's what the Greek word is, euangelion, spreading the light of Jesus. And as a chaplain at Providence, this is a ministry I'm much more involved with now. Uh, Every day I meet people who live in darkness, or certainly people who desperately need to move more deeply into the light of Christ as they face needs in their life. Not long ago, I read a book on evangelism titled Reimagining Evangelism by Rick Richardson. And uh, in this book, he names the fact that, you know, most Christians feel uncomfortable with evangelism. Uh, Maybe we Reformed Christians uh, head the line of that camp. Uh, And it's just, you know, a a thing we know that the Lord wants us to spread the the light of his truth in this world, but, you know, what what is it all? So he contends that the problem is that too much we view evangelism as salesmanship. And instead, he um, encourages us to think of evangelism as being a travel guide, helping others on a spiritual journey, travel guide. 
And that's why I've titled this On Becoming Travel Guides. Let me read this uh, paragraph from his introduction. Um, The paradigm of evangelism that's dominated much of 20th century evangelical Christianity might be called evangelism as closing the deal on a sales call. Many Christians think they have to dump their content on someone and then close the deal or else they really haven't shared their faith. Our image of the evangelism is the image of a spiritual salesman. And that paradigm is a barrier. For it leaves Christians feeling like they don't really have a part to play if they aren't extroverted and persuasive or expert on their products, skilled at responding to questions that'll come up, able to be a little assertive when it comes to making and closing the deal. If they can't relate to that, then they don't identify with evangelism as part of their life and gifts. People, he says, uh, he writes, often say to me some version of the following, I don't like to push things on people if they don't want them. I'm kind of an introvert. I'm not good at arguing with people. I avoid conflict. I hate awkwardness in relationships. And so evangelism is not for me. I feel guilty that I don't share my faith, but I feel inadequate, shut down, even inauthentic about becoming an extroverted crusader for God. And these are widespread, debilitating sentiments. We feel like a salesperson selling a product that most people don't want. We're shut in. We're shut down because we go by a script that doesn't work for us. And we have pictures and practices that don't fit us or the people we want to reach. Now, I think, I don't know, can you relate to that? But, he adds, we can recover our confidence and excitement if we believe that God is at work everywhere. and Then we're more like detectives in evangelism, discovering clues, and a guide sharing wisdom. With those images, evangelism feels very different. We can look for God to be at work always and everywhere and then be a guide in that process. A travel, spiritual travel guide. That's, I think, an image of evangelism that we can relate to more comfortably, and I want to work with that tonight. And, uh, you know, I mean, who doesn't enjoy reading a a travel guide when you go traveling? You know, uh, fodders, is that how you... Yeah, we used to... My wife and I went to Europe for quite an extensive time, and we traveled around with this thick book. The travel guide. Or who doesn't like to be a travel guide? Someone, you're walking down the side, and someone pulls over for directions... And they say, and you know uh, the way that, where they want to go, you, it's, it's an enjoyable thing, right, to be a travel guide. Travel guides are there to help people when they've lost their way or they need direction to life's chief end when we think of spiritual travel guides. Now, that said, uh, there certainly are times when people don't want directions, uh, men are notorious for never wanting to get asked directions, and we know people that way. And uh, they do sometimes end up in back alleys and dead ends. And, uh, you know, those are some of the places that I see them uh, at Providence. And uh, at those point in 
places of time, they uh, might just turn with some interest uh, about direction and traveling into the light of Christ. But the most important thing is that spiritual travel guides are needed in our world because God is at work everywhere. And he's always at work. He's always calling people to walk into the light of his son. And he is committed to the increase of that light in this world. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. So as uh, co-laborers with God in this world, we want to be effective travel guides. And to that end, I'd like us to make our way through this well-known story of the Samaritan woman, and learn from Jesus himself some uh, what I call travel guiding principles. And uh, uh, because the Lord God Almighty is at work always and everywhere, uh, I want us to note these aspects tonight of being an effective travel guide. And I pray the Lord's blessing on this into our lives. First of all, travel guides cultivate relationships. So we'll begin at verse 4. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria, and so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and uh, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which would be noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now let me just pause at that point. Uh, Not only back then did Jews not associate with Samaritans, but in that setting, nor did men with women, especially a woman who would come to draw water at midday, there was probably something indicative of social shunning of a woman of disrepute because normally water would be drawn at the beginning or the evening of the day. But Jesus becomes a travel guide. We know how this story ends up. She moves into the light of his person and he begins by cultivating a relationship. And this is part of being a travel guide, doing that, even with people we might least expect to do so with because God is at work in this world always and everywhere. I learned this lesson uh, the hard way this past summer at Providence. I try to get around to visit everyone who comes to Providence for rehabilitation. And as I do so uh, initially, I I seek to learn if people have religious uh, affiliations or what their spiritual backgrounds are. And <laughs> when I met this fellow, John, he was uh, an older man, hard of hearing, his health not great. His wife was with him, and she was quick to tell me, oh, he, this guy, he's not a Christian. <clears throat> she, she's a Christian, but he's not. In fact, he, she said at one point he said he was in order to get me to marry him, but later he said that to her that he was only doing that to, uh, it was just a deception, so she... She would marry him. But she stayed with him for many, many years, hoping to see him come to Christ. And so I get this uh, t- you know, intake information, 
And I'm thinking, well, I don't have to spend a lot of time with this guy because his wife has borne witness to him for years. Not only is he hard of hearing, this guy's really hard of heart. As hard as they come. So I actually, I didn't spend much time with him because there's always just so many different people I can visit and I kind of have to select where I think God's most at work. I was off for a few days of summer vacation. I come back and... Uh, uh, Jackie, our administrator, uh, is all excited. Tell, she tells me this wonderful story of a man who's baptized at Providence. Sure enough, it's him. They, they dunked him in a big bath that they have there. Uh, <clears throat> she was from a uh, believer's baptism, full immersion tradition. And uh, while he was there, he was convicted of his need for Christ. And he wanted to give his life to Christ. Just Amazing. And so his wife called her pastor, and the pastor, they all arranged for this baptism to happen there. And it was wonderful. It was, in fact, it was written up in one of the Providence uh, brochures. And uh, my take on this was, you know, Blau, just, like, don't write people off. Don't write people off. I mean, if Jesus wrote people off, he would have written that woman off at a well at midday, like, immediately. Don't write people off. Don't write them off. God's at work, always and everywhere. But I do also want to point out how Jesus cultivated relationship. This is something I've been learning to get better at as a chaplain. He expresses a personal need. This whole thing starts when he says, can you, can you help me out? I, I, need a, I need a drink of water. I'm thirsty. I need a hand. And what he does is he makes himself lovable, you might say. Uh, <clears throat> We cultivate relationships with other people, yes, by taking interest in them, because people are very interesting. They have unique stories, and it's, it's really interesting to find out uh, who people are and what's been part of uh, their, their story. And, um, but equally important, and I think perhaps even uh, sometimes just way more important, uh, we cultivate relationships by making ourselves known, especially if we have needs, Jesus, this woman's life is changed by Jesus who begins by sharing his need. He lets her know who he is, and that kind of sharing is very hospitable. It's like making room for someone to come into your life. You know that. If someone comes up here and shares what's going on in their life, um, and, and it, it, it opens up ways that you can have relationship. And she moves into that uh, place. And, you know, a lot of us aren't very good at, at doing this. We're rather independent. Some of us who, and myself included, come out of a certain ethnic orientation. <laughs> We're, we like to keep control in relationships. I'll do the giving, uh, you know, but when we share ourselves, when we share our stories, when we share our needs, with people find room to connect with us. And so uh, I've learned to do that. Um, and, and I would encourage you to do that. This whole life change, Jesus is the one. He's not coming to her saying, I got everything for you. The whole, he does have everything for her. But the whole thing starts by saying, can you give me a hand? And I've learned as I've been evangelistically involved, that uh, it's important for me to share 
what I'm reading with people. Or if I have a prayer uh, need in my life, to ask people, especially those who have evidenced faith, would you pray for me? Um, this is what's going on in my life. Um, and to show pictures on my iPhone of my kids or my, my dog. They love seeing my dog. You know, things like that open up space for people to have relationship. One time, uh, <clears throat> I organized a mission trip, and I knew this like 270-pound construction guy, Chris. And uh, he was far from church. And, <clears throat> but I also knew he was very good with a hammer. <laughs> and we were building. And, and I said, you know what? We need you. Can you give us a hand? Come on this trip. And it was a time that God did some amazing things. So cultivate relationship as a travel guide. Uh, share your life with others. And especially if you have needs, Say, you know, can you give me a hand? Because that, that, that changes the dynamic of a relationship, and it, and it cultivates a, an environment in which God works. Well, d- having done that, a second uh, thing that travel guides do is they elevate conversations. So let's go back, if you've got your Bibles open. I'll just keep us going through this story, section by section. Verse 10. So Jesus answered her, well, if you know the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Instead, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Let's pause there. Boy, I'm reading about this water. So the relationship's been cultivated, and now Jesus elevates conversation from physical water to spiritual water, from physical thirst to spiritual thirst, from the material world to the spiritual world. In other, or, or you might say through the material world to the spiritual world, because the material world is a good world, and we use it to point to the higher, not to the higher, but to the spiritual, the other, the eternal world. I did that at the outset of this sermon when I said, did you notice that the light is increasing in this world? And I've elevated that conversation to make us realize it's in Christian tradition, a witness uh, physically to a spiritual reality we rejoice in that the light of Christ is increasing in this world. Thirst is both physical and spiritual. It's both temporal and eternal. It's a need of the body and the heart. Jesus is the one who quenches the heart's thirst for love and for truth. And in being a travel guy, we look for opportunities to elevate the conversation into the things eternal or spiritual, things to do with God. There is some artistry and skill in this, no doubt. But I would ask you never to dismiss your ability to, uh, to do this, to, uh, to, to bring in and reflect upon the things going on in life from 
the spiritual and the eternal. Because this is the very place we experience the Holy Spirit. Really opening, opening doors of insight and giving us uh, ideas and uh, just a, a ways to do that so that we, we not only talk about baseball, you know, but we can talk about in the flow of a baseball game just the, the spiritual hunger to make our way home. I mean, that's what life is all about, right? We've got to get home. We've got to get home. We, we're not in our home. And that's why baseball is a great game. So I'll elevate the conversation. And the Holy Spirit opens, opens ways that we can begin to think of things eternal, things of beauty and truth and goodness, things of God. And he gives insight, just as he did for Jesus here. Uh, this past month, I've been praying for a father whose 34-year-old daughter suffered brain uh, hemorrhaging in conjunction with the delivery of her first child. And the baby is fine, but the mom who we care for, who we care for, and you're all part of this ministry, has been significantly damaged, and she's bedridden, and she's unable to communicate, and she's just very slowly, slowly gaining ability of mind. And it's very painful. I can, uh, I can cry about it, just thinking about it. But in that pain, there's, there's this father. He's there every day, her father. And um, he keeps asking this, what have, what have I done? What have we done to deserve this? And he's, he, he was pretty angry. He's sort of lesser angry now. But he's, he's thinking of pain solely in the category of punishment, which is not unbiblical because pain in this world is, is, is connected to sin in it and sometimes even to specific specific sin in one's individual life. There's connections there. But pain also is God calling, isn't it? It's God speaking. It's God inviting. C.S. Lewis's famous line, he, God whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. So I've been praying and, and, and thinking, you know, I, I just would like this man to, to think of his pain in a different category. And um, I wasn't really getting very far, but then in the flow of that, all of a sudden, another uh, area opened up, bitterness. And life's events and, and mistreatments can leave us really bitter. And this was something that that man could very much relate to because he was raised by a father who was very bitter. And uh, he himself has had, have had, has had to work through a lot of mistreatment in his life. So all of a sudden, this new door opens up to talk about how do we deal with bitterness? How do we deal with, uh, you know, when we're perceived to be mistreated or we actually are mistreated? Well, we need grace. You know, we have to move outside of, of, of a realm of justice. We need uh, forgiveness. We need to be able to forgive. Otherwise, we're bound to that. Mistreatment, we're bound to that event and that pain. And that's who God is, because God has been mistreated. That's what sin is. And the meaning of the gospel is that God has extended grace, costly grace, in the death of his son. But you can know God. He helps us to forgive. He helps us to deal with 
that, that what we perceive or actually have experiences as mistreatment. And so as travel guides, what we do is we, we want to just be open to, um, attentive to kind of openings as Jesus is in this situation. He asks for water and then, you know, he must have sensed there's a woman who's really thirsty. It's not hard to figure it out. She's there in the middle of the day getting water because I guess, you know, she's of disrepute in such a way. So, <clears throat> as travel guides, we elevate conversation and be attentive to the Holy Spirit opening that up because God's at work in this world, always and everywhere. Okay, third thing, delineate need. I really worked on this outline, so I got to say it. What was the first one again? It was uh, cultivate, cultivate relationship, and the second is elevate conversations, but delineate needs. Verse 15, while the woman says to Jesus, give me the water, please give me this water so I won't get thirsty, and I have to keep coming here to draw water. And Jesus told her, well, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So now Jesus is going to take his elevated conversation and make it personal and pointed. The woman has expressed the desire for living water, and Jesus needs to help her know that she, like, really needs this living water like every human being does. But she needs it more than she may even realize because this is not just a theological concept. Woman, you are a thirsty lady. But in your thirst, you've been drinking in the wrong places. Men. Men. The Holy Spirit gives to Jesus an insight into this woman's life which helps him to delineate her need. The thirsts of the soul for love and significance and belonging, we all have them and we all seek to quench them. This woman undoubtedly looked to men to meet. If I marry this one, I'm going to be happy. I will be loved as I want to be loved. You know, well, no, that didn't work. Let's try another one. Let's try another one. She's gone through five of them. You know, and those of us who are married know that if you depend on another human being for your heart's ultimate love, ultimate happiness, that, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Yes, our spouses do make us, but if you're depending on it, like this is what's going to quench my thirst for love and happiness, this other person... That person's going to let you down. No human can fill that need. Only God in Christ can. We all need love and belonging. We need security. It's part of being a created human being. The trouble is, and this leads us to understand sin, is we take those thirsts and we quench them in the wrong way. This woman does with men, but you know others do with their job. If I get this job or this size bank account, then I'll matter. If I get grades, good grades, you know, if I get straight A's, then, I, then I'm significant. If, I mean, we all have, I re, brings to mind my 
first grade report card. I grew up thinking, you know, I'm, I really matter if I get straight A's. Well, I got a B, and I, can't, I was a mess. I was such a mess. The teacher wrote on there, Heino has to learn that it's okay to get a B from time, you know, because I depended on that success measurement for significance. Others do it with their athletic achievement. Others find it in booze. Such quenching leads us to become lawbreakers, womanizers, alcoholics, callous businessmen, manipulating mothers, because my family is going to be this way, and that's what makes me significant and secure. Ball-hogging basketball players, because I've got to get my shot. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, my people have committed two sins. Chapter 2, verse 13. That's a verse all of us should know. Jeremiah 2, 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. That's the first sin. They have forsaken me. That's our initial rebellion from God. And they have dug their own cisterns. That's our misplaced means of seeking to quench the natural thirsts of the heart. They have dug their own cisterns, but there are broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Before we can truly drink of the light in the light of Christ, we must name that thirst and confess the false ways that we seek to quench it. We are sinners because out of our heart's thirst, we worship the created. This woman worshipped men in the sense that she was trying to suck out of them the water that only God can give. We worship, as it says in Romans chapter 1, the created instead of the creator. So Jesus is just pointing this out. He makes clear to this woman that, that her need, she has a need for living water that he has come to give. And I will say this, just as the Holy Spirit gave him insight to see, to see this need that she had, and he's pointing it out, he'll give it to us. Probably not in the same means, but the Bible teaches in Corinthians that the Holy Spirit gives us gifts of knowledge. He gives gifts of discernment. In the context of relationships, he gives us this insight so that we might help people recognize the false ways that they have dug their own cisterns Empty, broken cisterns that won't hold water. Travel guides, they cultivate relationship, they elevate conversations, and they delineate spiritual needs. Third, they differentiate Jesus. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, wow, I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Having had her need 
made clear. The woman turns the conversation to the subject of church. Where's the right place? Where's the best place? Where's the hot place to worship? And to quench the needs of the, uh, the thirsts of the heart, it is natural to look to religion. She, she brings up a subject. You know, it may have been that she was rather uncomfortable talking about her marital relationships, but uh, she's talking about church. And as an aside, I want to affirm that as we guide people into the light of Christ, and you and I are, are set here to do that, we want to uphold the church because together we are the body of Christ. Evangelism is not an individual affair. It's a communal, it's a communal thing. If we want people to meet Jesus, they need the church. They need to come together and they need to meet him in the joy of your singing and in the compassion of your deacons and, of the, and in the word of your pastor and in the vision of, of World Renew and in, the, and in the love of coffee break and in the teaching of, of, of Sunday school. But that said, so the church is necessary, but that said, travel guides go beyond matters of religion, as Jesus does, to point to Jesus himself. In that sense, that's what I mean by they differentiate Christ above the church. The mission of the church is to draw people to Jesus. He is the end, the church is the means. And this is what Jesus does with the woman, having affirmed that God's salvation does come through the Jewish nation. He makes clear, however, that religious structure is penultimate. It's not the end. The end is a people who will worship the Lord God Almighty in spirit and in truth. And to that end, Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the spirit. He is the Messiah who can definitively explain all things of God. Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I who speak to you am he. I am the I am. He differentiates himself as God's unique salvation on earth. And that's what we do as we guide people toward the light. And this is a wonderful thing. Because, uh, as you know uh, firsthand, the church always has a pretty checkered record of witness. I get this regularly at Providence people uh, have to work their way through the church sometimes. And we have a lot of Catholics in our area, and it's, a, it's, it was, it's been learning to me just how, how often the, the abuses of the priest get brought up. And uh, I, I'll just, those are the occasions I make clear, the church is not the light. <laughs> Jesus is the light. The church is not the living water. Jesus is the living water. The church is just a hose. And yes, we need hoses and we need faucets, but hoses crack and faucets corrode. To enter and grow into the light, we need Jesus himself. He is the living water who speaks God's truth to us in relationship, in spirit. It's also great because we, uh, <clears throat> to differentiate Christ in that way, because we live in an increasingly pluralistic society at Providence, I've conversed with Muslims, Buddhists, and more than one uh, of, of those, Baha'i, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Christian Sciences, and my approach in speaking to them of spiritual things is not so much, well, I'm right and you're wrong. I just want to draw attention to Jesus, who himself has claimed to be the truth. 
and the way and the life. And then I may give reasons why I believe what he said about himself is true. But I differentiate Jesus because of what he claimed. And that's what we do as a travel guide. He's the one who's on trial. He's the one who claims he is the living word of God. And so is he crazy? Is he lying? Or is he what he says he is? You know, that's, that's what we do when we share. share. It's, it's, it's about him. So in that way, we differentiate Jesus as he did himself with this woman. Just this week, I had a conversation with a woman. She had grown up Catholic, been confirmed. And she said, you know, I went through all that in the Stations of the Cross and this confession. I did not understand a thing. And so, of course, she left, left the church and, you know, to quench her soul's thirst, she dug a lot of cisterns, all of which had dried up in her life. And just now, she's beginning again to think about, you know, her early experiences. And she's actually just started to understand what it meant that there's sin in this world, and Jesus dies for sinners, and she's, she's moving into the light with, with some pace, you might say, and she welcomed me giving her a Bible, and, and it's about him. Read this to know him. And that highlights, we're almost done here, a fifth travel guiding principle. It's not so much in our passage as Jesus is guiding this woman to himself, but along with cultivating relationships, and doing these other things, the travel guide initiates a response. We invite people to take some step toward the light. We say, read this. Come to this event. Go to this website. Uh, Turn from that sin. Begin this routine. Say this prayer. Come with me to this worship service. I mean, we we initiate some steps. Steps. Because actions affirm and deepen faith. In our story, having met Christ, this woman acts. She goes back to her people and she says to some of them, I've met a person who's claiming to be the Christ. And he has spoken truly and deeply into my life. And I think he could be the Christ. And so it says in verse 30 that they come out of their town and they make their way toward him. She has become, in fact, a travel guide. She herself. And so to finish... Verse 31, as Paul Harvey would say, let's read the rest of the story. Verse 31, so they come out of the town, they make their way toward him, and meanwhile, uh, his disciples say, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, Jesus, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. His disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I just think that, you know, when you're really joyful, you don't get, you're not that hungry. I just think he has such a joy from having guided this woman into the light of God himself that he's really not that hungry. And then he goes on, verse 35. Don't say there are four more months and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. And thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap for what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. We all have a part. The smallest guide, the smallest guiding is all part of this increase. Many of the Samaritans, verse 39... 
from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Travel guides. Cultivate relationships, elevate conversations, delineate needs, differentiate Jesus, and initiate response. And um, I just hope that this teaching will, will help you in your calling to spread the light of Christ. And to some of the people, you have people in your life, I know you do, um, that, that need to be guided into the light or light guided more deeply. And even more importantly... I pray that these words would uh, guide your own journey into Christ. Because in one sense, that journey never ends in this age, does it? Uh, We lose our way. Uh, We experience the thirst of a broken cistern. We lose our job or a relationship breaks or an addiction really grabs us. But Jesus is living water. He's the one who brings us into such intimacy and relationship with God's spirit and truth, such that our greatest delight, our deepest buzz, our joy is in knowing the will of God and and struggling and fighting and being empowered to do it. So cisterns ultimately grow dry so that we'll meet and drink that living water. Turn to him, and then you will know the blessing of his increasing government in your life. A government that will know no end, for the zeal of the Lord Almighty is 